Hey, good morning, everyone. I see some new faces. Uh, my name is Andy, and I, I'm a pastor here at, at Bridge, not the pastor, one of many. But uh, about once a month, I have the privilege of, of bringing God's Word on a Sunday morning, and I absolutely love to do it. That doesn't, looks like it's going to be okay. Is it going to be okay? I think it's going to be okay. We are so glad that you're here. I'm so glad to see kids. Um, kids are totally welcome here. We love children. We love what they bring and the joy and the energy. But if you as a parent are, are feeling, like Danny said, like, hey, maybe just running around and getting some of those wiggles out, um, we would love for you just to uh, go, go watch the service in the Fellowship Center. You're welcome to do that. You're welcome to let your kids see other kids and have a blast. Uh, this morning, we are going to um, jump back into the Gospel of John. And I was I was preparing this week, and I thought, I have literally zero temptation to do one of these gimmicky 10 easy steps to 20, 24 sermons. So I want to let you know that. If you're here like, I got my notes, I already numbered 1 through 10, what are 10 easy steps for me to be a better person in 2024? You're not going to get it this morning. This is not the new year, new you sermon. This is the sermon I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag and tell you, is here is the takeaway. That as we turn the calendar page into a new year, this is my encouragement and my challenge to you. That you would wake up every morning and you would do the long, slow, hard work of obedience in your discipleship to Jesus. That's my encouragement to you. You could even write it this way. Same old, same old in some ways. That we're just going to continue pushing forth. And I thought there's no more fitting way on a, a holiday that the, the world celebrates and tells us how it's supposed to be and what we're supposed to do than for us just to gather on New Year's Eve and say, let's open God's word right to where we left off. Let's go verse by verse through the gospel of John and say, God, we're here. We want to hear from you. And we open ourselves up to your word. Does that sound good to you? Okay, so let's do it. We're going to be in John chapter 7. If you recall before Christmas where we left off was we ended at verse 24. So let me give you a little context and a little kind of background as we begin at verse 25. Basically, this is what's happened. Jesus has come on the scene. He, he's begun to teach and proclaim uh, freedom to the captives. He's begun to heal people. He's performed many miracles and something uh, bad has happened to him. He has become public enemy number one to the powers that be. Uh, anybody remember that show? It had the really catchy music. It was the FBI's Most Wanted. You guys remember that show? I used to love that show when I was a kid. I just imagined Jesus with his face plastered over uh, all of Jerusalem on the posters. We are looking for this man. This man is not supposed to be here. He's influencing them in the wrong way. And so we learn at the beginning of chapter 7 that Jesus kind of goes underground for a second. And some of his Close friends say, well, are we going to go to the festival in Jerusalem? It's the festival, we call it the festival of booths. How many of you have heard that and thought, I would not attend a festival called the festival of booths? It just doesn't have a good ring to it. I'm not envisioning like funnel cake and churros or anything like that. I'm just thinking booths. What is a, a booth? But let me tell you really quickly about the festival of booths because this is what Jesus does. He goes underground for a second, and then he reappears. And he doesn't reappear at some obscure little village out in the middle of nowhere. He shows back up in Jerusalem in the middle of one of the largest feasts on the entire calendar and says, if you want me, here I am. I'm not afraid of you. I will speak with more boldness than ever. I will proclaim the kingdom of God no matter what, and there's nothing that you can do to stop me. And he comes into Jerusalem during this festival. Some people call it the Festival of Booths. Some people call it the Tabernacles, some the Shelters. But here's the idea. It is the week-long celebration of all the ways that God provided and protected his people when they wandered in the desert. Remember that whole story where Jesus, or I'm sorry, where God told Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and then the people go out into the desert? And for 40 years, what do they do? They wander. They are a nomadic people. They set up makeshift shelters for themselves, and they worship God. But none of that is possible except for God providing for his people. He provides food and protection. He provides water. And so this celebration is gathering together, and every single day is a massive celebration. And I was uh, just reading last night, I was reading an ancient rabbi. He wrote, um, this is my paraphrase of his words, he said, you have never seen true rejoicing 
if you've not attended the festival in Jerusalem. This is a raucous feast. This is a place where people remember all the things that God has done for them in the past, because as they proclaim what God has done in the past, they remember what God could be doing for them in the present. And so they gather for this festival. We're going to talk about uh, this festival a little bit in context as we go. But the second part about this festival is very important. It's a festival that is surrounded by the imagery of water. Because water is the key to all life. And they recognize that out in that desert that we wandered, without water, everything, and I mean everything, goes to die. And so their imagery and their rituals are all about water, and it's, it comes to be known as a great time of the ingathering, the harvest season. It's a time when the harvest comes in and they begin taking stock of how much did we get for the year? How many of you know that's a very important question to ask yourself during the harvest if you are a people dependent on that harvest? And so they would celebrate and they would worship, and there was a belief that at this festival is when God decided for himself how much rain he would send on the land for the next year. And so they were motivated to celebrate well. Okay, are we on the same page? So this is the context. Jesus goes straight into the temple because he's not afraid, and we pick it up at verse 25 in in chapter 7. This is what it says. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, he's just speaking speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Just pause right there. This is what's going on. They are surprised Because if you can just uh, envision walking into the temple complex and you've seen Jesus' wanted poster all over Jerusalem, then you walk into like the center where all the authorities are, and there he is teaching, this strikes you as a pretty bold move, wouldn't you say? There he is. And it begins this dialogue where they have to ask themselves some questions. He's standing right here. How come they're not arresting him? And then they go on to say this. Can it be that they know that this really is the Christ? So here's their question. Do they know some information that they're withholding from us? What is the explanation that they're not arresting this man? He's standing before us and he's teaching with boldness right to their faces and still they do nothing. So they have to ask this question and it slips into their conversation. Is it possible that this really is the Christ? Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, uh, I got to tell you, I was ignorant to this until this week, but I, I learned something new. How many of you know learning something new about the Bible is very important? So I didn't know this, but in the first century, there was kind of two schools of thought on who the Messiah was and where he would come from. And they both come from different prophecies in the Old Testament. The first one comes from uh, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to check it out for yourself. But here was the idea. Malachi led people to believe that when the Messiah was to come, he would just kind of, poof, come out of nowhere, almost like a lightning strike, and there he would be. And so what we're reading is likely a group of Jews who believe that. And so what they're saying is, we know where this man came from, therefore he can't be the Messiah. Scratching head, right? Is that right? That's what they're asking themselves. In a few verses, we're going to find the other group of people who are going to say, this can't be the Messiah, because this man, I'm pretty sure, came from Galilee, and the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So they have the idea from the book of Micah, chapter 5, and I would encourage you to check that out, that says, oh, Bethlehem, you are not least among the nations. The Messiah will arise from you. This is a a famous Christmas passage. And so the dialogue is beginning, and I want you to see this, that as the crowds see Jesus, they see him confront the authorities. They're not arresting him. All it does is makes the buzz around him grow, and the conversations amongst them become about who is this man. Let's jump back in at verse 28. 
So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me, and you know where I come from. I believe this is a wink-wink sarcasm. They think they know physically and geographically where he comes from, but listen to this. But I have not come of my own accord. He, who's, he who sent me is true, and in him you do not know. What is he saying? He's saying to the religious elites, I am sent by the Father, and the reason you don't recognize that is because you don't know him. I'm pretty sure this is what people refer to as fighting words. You don't even know him. This is the temple. This is Jerusalem. This is the religious elites. This is the, the Pharisees. This is the group of people who are responsible for shepherding God's people. And what does Jesus say to them in their own home, more or less, in the temple? You don't even know him. If you did, you would know who I am. So you want to know what people do when you confront them and you challenge their power? Verse 30 tells us. So they were seeking to arrest him. we got to eliminate this guy. He's going to cause nonstop trouble. If he's willing to show up with his wanted poster right into the temple and confront us and basically rub it right under our noses, this is as good as it's going to get. It's going to get worse. And we have to eliminate him while we can. So they want to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I love this verse. John wants us to know that maybe from the outside it looks like this. The Pharisees cannot arrest him yet because the timing isn't good. Do you know that like when a revolutionary arises and somebody who has like the ear of the people, you got to eliminate that guy with a good strategy. Otherwise, it's going to turn him into a martyr. Have you heard this before? And so they got to scheme and they got to figure out when is the time we can nab him when nobody will notice. Can anyone remember when they actually do arrest him? When do they do it? Late at night. Where do they do it? Out in the Garden of Gethsemane, where no one will notice. They'll wake up in the morning and think, oh, where did that guy go? Or that's what they think. So they can't nab him yet. That's maybe the prevailing wisdom, but John wants you to know the real reason that they can't nab him yet is not because their strategy isn't good enough. It's because the sovereign God in heaven who controls all things has determined that this is not his time. His time has not come. It is not up to the Pharisees to dictate how time operates. It is God, the creator, who determines how time works, and he says it's not yet the time. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So what I want to tell you as I read this scripture over and over, I think this just was one of those verses that stuck out to me. Because it seems to me like in our world, we desperately want like this peace and order. And we think in our mind, like if we just got everything right and we just got peace and quiet and the right altar call tone with the perfect lighting and the smoke machine going and the right key on the piano, so many people would accept Jesus. I was so encouraged a few weeks ago when when Haley was sharing and she was telling us stories of just utter chaos and violence in the Middle East and how that became the place where tons of people got to hear the good news about Jesus. I think John wants us to know that in in our desire to control time and how things operate, we are operating like a Pharisee because here's the idea, that God can make himself known, people can come to faith in Jesus even in the most chaotic, unexpected times imaginable. How many of you would say that is good news for some people I love dearly? And this is their rationale. I love just how John records this thinking of the people. Look what it says. Many of the people believed in him. And why? Because they reasoned among themselves. When the Christ appears, so if this guy is not the real Messiah, are you telling me that when the real Messiah comes that that person's going to do more signs than this man has done? How many of you have been following along in the Gospel of John? We are seven chapters in. We're like barely 25% through. What has Jesus already done? A lot or a little? 
a lot. I think what they're saying is this. You're telling me that when the real Messiah comes, he's going to heal more people than this guy? I got a cousin who listened to this guy teach, and he swears up and down that he multiplied bread and fed 5,000 people. And I would have thought it was a lie, except I know 10 other people who were there, and they tell it the exact same way. I know of a guy, he used to be the most obnoxious beggar ever. His family used to carry him down to the pool. And then I saw him the other day, and he was running on two feet saying that Jesus healed him. And you're telling me that this isn't the real Messiah? Please, I believe. That's what's happening here. How cool is that? And so if you're taking notes, this is um, some of my my thoughts. I I just like to make a slide of some of my thoughts. Maybe you track with it, maybe you don't. But this is what I wrote in my own words. As Christians, we don't believe that God's salvation work is on pause because of chaos and disorder. Sometimes we want to control so badly, and I've been so guilty of this. If I could just get somebody to listen to the full, like, 40-minute perfect sermon that I heard, that'll get them. If they could just hear this one scientist explain the ins and the outs of all these things that are are questions in this person's mind, then they'll come around. And we want to control into peace and order, but the reality is, is that God makes himself known even in chaos. And you know how he does it? Because he encounters people where they're at. That even when an authority figure like a Pharisee says, this guy needs to be arrested, they say, I've heard the stories and I've seen with my own eyes, there's nothing that you're going to say to change my mind about who this guy is. Let's push forward to verse 32. I was about to say it's getting good, but it's been good from verse 1. I want you to know I believe that. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to... Arrest him. Second time, we've got to eliminate this guy. This is what it says. Jesus then said to them, I'll be with you a little longer. You're not taking me. I'm actually going to be here a bit, so buckle up. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I was reading that this week, and I was thinking that we have an almost five-year-old, how often the threat of, that person's not coming to my birthday party. (laughs) Jesus says, you're going to come looking for me in this great game of hide-and-seek of you trying to catch me, but i got a hiding place. You'll never find me. So the Jews said to one another, they're beginning to reason and try to figure out, what the heck is this guy saying? Where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. This is just my opinion, but I think for these people, what's happening is the red alert is going off because what they are experiencing is, I think they think what Jesus is saying is, I am a flight risk. I'll disappear again and you'll never be able to find me. And what does that do for people who want to eliminate them, eliminate him? It just increases and turns up the urgency to get him, doesn't it? Now let's look at what he actually is saying. What is he actually saying? He's saying, I'm going to be with you a little longer. There will actually come a time where he hands himself over to them. But then I will go to a place that you cannot come. I'm going to the one who sent me. And why can't they come? Because in their arrogance, in their pride, their, their refusal to acknowledge who he is, to just see what's before them and, and have some deep thought about maybe he's telling the truth. Instead, they dig in their heels and they're positive he can't be the Messiah. And because of that conclusion, they will not be going with him. That's what he says. I love um, the irony. Did you catch where they think he might go to hide. You see that? Is this guy crazy enough to go try to disappear among the Greeks? You see that? I was thinking about that this week, and I I thought, you know, we're doing a midweek Bible study on Ephesians. Do you know where the Ephesians are? They're in a city called Ephesus. This is among the Greeks. In just a couple decades after the Gospel of John, guess what's going to happen? Jesus is going to go to the Greeks, isn't he? He's not going to go 
in his bodily form, but he's going to go on the lips of the Apostle Paul, and in just a few short decades, thousands, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of Greeks will know all about Jesus. Places like Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, all these places will explode with Jesus going there. How cool is that? Before we move on, I, I, wanna, um, I wish I had made a slide, but I didn't. But I, I think that you, you can grasp this. I, I want to talk a little bit about the Pharisees. Because if you've heard me up here before, one of the things that I, I always try to remember as I read is that I hate Pharisees. You too? And then I read some more and I realize, oh, maybe there's a bit of Pharisee in me. And then I read a little bit more and I realize maybe there's more than just a little bit. And I think if we don't pause and recognize that the Pharisees, they are being blasted. They are being called out. But if we just let them be the bad guy, then what we leave with is Jesus is good and I'm on his team and he hates the bad guys, so go team. <laughs> Instead of Jesus might be correcting something in us. So I want to do two things because I, I was reading a, a bit this week and I, I read something and I thought, man, that explains the Pharisees, but it explains my heart too. So I want to first talk about how the Pharisees view themselves and then how that might apply to us in 2023, soon to be 2024. We will probably get that wrong for a month before we say it correctly. This is the Pharisees' belief. The belief is that there is God in heaven, Yahweh, and he has spoken his Torah, his law, into existence, and that comes to them. And it is their job to be the arbiter of the law and enforcing the law to the common people. It's very important because they are the middlemen in their own eyes between God and the people. Now, at its core, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if they see themselves as, as part of this divine calling to love people well, to shepherd them, to teach them God's word, to make sure that they're following God in the ways that they're supposed to. But is that how most Pharisees do it? No. Instead, they see themselves as the great power brokers that you have no access to God except when you come to us. And that's how they see the world. And their problem is this, that Jesus shows up and he goes out to the countryside. Do you notice that Jesus does a lot in the countryside? Do you know who feels comfortable in the countryside? Common people. The Bible calls them the crowds. They feel comfortable and they go out to him and guess what he does? He tells them that you have access to the spirit and the presence of God right here, right now. You have it. Now do you see the problem that the Pharisees are going to have with this? Because what he's saying, his theology that he's teaching them, is that you have access to God. Remember this whole business where he says, hey, when, when I, uh, I'm going to tear down this temple in three days, the curtain is going to be torn? What is he saying? There will no longer be someone who stands as the arbiter, the middleman between you and God. You'll just have access to him. Now, this is bad news for Pharisees because Pharisees need their position because without this, they have no authority, they have no power, they have no ability to, to manipulate the masses of people. I'm not sure if you're like really intent or you're not getting it at all. You get it, thanks. He gets it. I'll just, all right, Dylan, let's do this, you and me. Okay, so I was reading this week, second point. And I read this, and apparently it's like, Social Psychology 101, I've never heard of it, but I, I looked it up and it's like 18-year-old freshman in college learning social psychology. It's this thing called the self-serving bias. The self-serving bias. And let me tell you how it works. It basically works like this. When I accomplish something good in my life, guess who's responsible for it? You. Me. And when something negative happens in my life, guess who's not responsible for it? Me. Guess whose problem it is? Somebody else. That's how it works. Now, this has uh, generated a, a culture of people that in some ways have achieved a great deal because you want to know what happens? When failure comes, you just brush it off and you move on. I'm responsible for my successes. My failure's not on me. And so I think the technical way of understanding it is this, is that internal uh, characteristics and qualities about me are why I do awesome stuff. When things go bad, it's extenuating circumstances. 
It's not me. It's the timing wasn't right, or that person's a jerk, or all sorts of things. So let me tell you a couple things. 77% of American drivers say they are better drivers than the common person. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, but that is statistically impossible. How about this? 91% of heart surgeons claim that the mortality rate of their patients is lower than that of other heart surgeons. See how that works? Here's one that hit me, um, and if, if you're a guy here with your wife, you might, you might get a laugh and a, an elbow right to the ribs here in a second, but here it is. Diehard sports fans. I'm talking about the people who use the pronoun we when they talk about their team, you know, like I'm on the team. <laughs> when their team wins, it's because their team is superior, has better players, better coaching. It's a better classy organization than the team that we just trounced. But when they lose, guess who's the refs? <laughs> they ruined it for us. We would have won except for, do you see how this works? It's not the team that lost, it's someone else who lost for us. Are you, are you guys getting this? You should look it up, there's all sorts of funny statistics. I didn't want to uh, say it, but there's one about how people view themselves as attractive or not. It, it turns out that people when asked by kind of an outside audience, hey, how attractive is that person? I go, it's like a seven and a half or something. But you're like, me? I'm a nine and a half. For sure I'm a nine and a half. <laughs> so why does all this matter? Because I think in the Pharisee's mind, the reason they are a Pharisee is not because they've been called of God, it's because they deserve it. They've been promoted to the temple in Jerusalem because I'm way smarter than you. And I'm way better than you. I was born into a more honorable family than you. And we're going to see some things they're about to say about the common people that give us this little glimpse into how they see the common people, the crowd. And it's not, it's not pleasant. Now, all of that is, I hope you're connecting the dots, that I just connected something that you all laughed at and seemed to resonate with to exactly how the Pharisees think. We are pre-programmed in some ways to think the same way as the Pharisees. And so this is what I want to leave with you on this chunk of scripture. I have a, a slide for it if we want to put that up. We should beware of the temptation to take credit for our spiritual growth and assign blame to others for the, our failures and our shortcomings. Let me give you um, some, some things. I won't betray names or anything, but I just had a conversation not long ago with someone who, who said something like this, and someone else very kindly called it out of them, and I think they'd be fine with me sharing. It more or less was like this. You know what? I'd have a really robust prayer life if it wasn't for my kids always annoying me. It was, you know, I'd wake up early in the morning and pray, but my kids always wake up and they annoy me. Now, some of you are laughing because your kids sometimes wake up way too early and you're like, man, go back to sleep. You're annoying. But do you see, you see the temptation? It's very subtle. The reason I don't pray is somebody else's problem. I would really, really know God's word well. I would take it really seriously. Maybe I'd read some other books about it Except my husband, he's just so demanding. You see how this works? This is the spirit of Pharisees. Or the opposite could be like this. Man, I have grown so much. You want to know why? I'm really smart. I read a lot of books. <laughs> and instead of, maybe Jesus wants to challenge me. And I should listen to him. It can become, what does he have to tell me? It's somebody else's fault anyways. Or, I already got this. I can do it on my own. Do you see the problem? The problem is disconnecting our faith and our growth from Jesus himself. And then Jesus just becomes like this little thing we sprinkle on top. It's just a condiment we dip our life in when we need him. Otherwise, we got this. That is the spirit of the Pharisees at work and taken to the nth degree. It's, I want to control other people. I want to demean other people. I want to look down on other people. And who cares about calling? I deserve this because I'm better. This is where the sermon gets extra good. Or the scripture. I, I don't know what you think about the sermon. Um, verse 37 says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, if you're an underliner, underline the great day because that is there for a reason and every Jew in the first century knows why and we're going to talk about it. On that day, Jesus stood up, he's still in the temple and he cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If anyone thirsts, you can come to me. Now remember this whole thing about the festival of booths, and this is a commemoration and a a reminder of what God did to provide for his people out in the desert. And as they do that, it begins to rush into the present of if God could do that in the past, he could do that for me right now in the present. Remember that whole thing? Well, it came with a whole set of rituals, and there was one primary ritual at the Feast of Booths that was bigger than all the other rituals. And I want to tell you about it. If you couldn't tell, I'm going to tell you about it. Here's what would happen. Every day of the week, the priest in the temple would grab a golden pitcher, and he would lead a procession out of the temple, and people would follow. They would be screaming and singing songs and reciting scriptures and laughing. This was the joyous occasion every day. And he would go down to this place, and and you should write this down if you're a note taker, because we're going to revisit this place, and I, I think they're connected. He would go to the Pool of Siloam, And he would go down to the water, and he would dip the pitcher in the water, and everyone would explode with cheering. This is the the reminder that the the source of all life comes from God. And then the, the priest would turn around and lead the procession back to the temple, and when he got there, he would pour the water on the altar, and it would be an explosion of celebration. That in that desert, God provided something that should not have even been there. Remember where the water came out of? A rock somewhere so outlandish to remind people that water doesn't flow in a desert, but but God. And they commemorate it, and they cheer it, and he does this every day except the last day. Because on the last day, they're no longer celebrating what God did in the desert. They're celebrating crossing the Jordan into the promised land finally, and that's when they begin to celebrate the harvest. So on the last day, the great day, is the greatest feast day of the whole festival. That is the day... The priest doesn't dip the water into the pool of Siloam, and he doesn't pour the water on the altar. And that's the day that Jesus stands up in the temple, and listen to what he says again. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think this is what Jesus is saying. For the last six and a half, seven days, you've been celebrating what God has done. And you've been reminded of how Moses struck the rock and water came flowing out of the rock. And you've been reminded that without God's provision in your life, nobody would have even made it to the promised land. And you've been reminded that God is the one who sends rain and the crops grow because of it. And he brought us into the promised land with the Jordan River where we can depend on water. And all of those things have been what you have been celebrating. But I want to tell you, everything you've been celebrating points to me. I am the great fulfillment. You want to know why? Because even if you took a cup and you drank water out of the rock, you got thirsty again. But in me, your thirst can be quenched forever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus is saying. And he stands up and it says he shouts it out in the temple. He makes sure everyone can hear. The thing that you're celebrating is me. And I am here to fulfill everything that you are celebrating. In me, he says, your belief is your drinking of me. Do you remember this already happened? He already said this once. Do you remember when he said it? He said it to a woman at a well. Now he is shouting it from the temple. It's saying it is available to everyone. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think this is kind of the the key of what he's saying. So, So often we come to faith or we come to know Jesus. And and, and I notice it in my own prayer life, if I'm honest, is so often I find myself praying primarily about the things that who needs? Me. 
But I think what Jesus is saying is the, the river of living water is not just for your salvation, although it's totally for that. It's that you would become a source of living water flowing out of you too. And if we keep the, the illustration going, what does water do? And there's water present, what happens? Stuff grows, yeah. Like 10 of you know about water, yeah. <laughs> Stuff grows. So what is he saying? The, the living water in you, stuff around you will begin to grow. Have you ever noticed just this realization where it pops in your head like, man, people are not without their issues, but there are people who know Jesus really well and their whole family is just really pleasant to be around. That's not to say there's not rough edges and there's not things getting worked on. Have you noticed this? Is it that living water might be flooding out and beautiful things are growing? You ever visit someone's workplace and you find out that around that person who knows Jesus super well, there just seems like peace and wonderful things? I, I want to share the story really quick. I saw him. Aaron Axtell is back there. He once asked me to come speak at his school at a Christian organization. I didn't know what I was getting into. I walked in and he's got this entire room and it's empty when I get there and I'm looking around like there's a lot of kids about to be in here. They come rushing in and it's a music class and it's literally utter chaos the sounds and the smells of teenagers and, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> and they're fiddling around, they're having fun. He gets up there and he speaks, and I have never in my life seen someone not with, like, control and anger or a loud voice. I've never seen somebody who kids were more excited to just look forward and listen to. And I thought about that this week. That's what the living water looks like. It looks like things around it begin to grow. The true fullness of life in Christ, it's available to you, but it's not just to restore you. It's to flow out of you, too. It's a beautiful promise of God. So what happens when people hear Jesus talk like this? It says this in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, I don't know why I inflected my voice like that. I don't, when people heard, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, mm, I don't think so. This is the Christ. But then some said, wait a second. Is the Christ supposed to come from Galilee? I thought the scripture said that the Christ was the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was division among the people. Some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. When I read that this, this is where my mind went. That it doesn't matter if it's, I don't know, the year 30 AD or 2023 or 2024. You know that Jesus is just a figure that people have opinions about? Do you know that? There's not too many people in the course of human history where you're like, what do you think about Jesus? And people have given it at least some thought, right? Maybe they might say, eh, I, thought, I think he's like a historical person that people blew out of proportion. Or I think he might have been like a, a Jewish prophet. Or I don't think he even existed. But everyone has an opinion about him. Have you noticed that? That's been going on since he walked the earth. People had opinions about him. So let's talk about what they say. There's a group of people that say, this really is a prophet. I recognize some spiritual authority in him. He's a strong teacher. He's a guy who commands an audience, and rightfully so. I would put him on par with a prophet. Now, I think in their mind, they're thinking, this is a pretty big compliment. But then there's a group of people that say, I think more than ever, I'm convinced this is the real Messiah. I, I see it, and I believe it. But then there's a group of people that are like, nah. And here's what they say. Are you ready for this? They say, can't be the Messiah because he came from Galilee. Did Jesus come from Galilee? Yes. Was he born in Galilee? No. We just celebrated that. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? So what are they saying? We know what the scripture says, but we haven't actually taken the time to understand who he really is. Now here is the ironic piece. I didn't know this, but I read it this week. Uh, I read it in two places, so I hope that's enough sources. Uh, Wikipedia and Yahoo.com. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. I wanted to make sure you're still like. 
in the temple. Do you remember this business when after Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary, they go to the temple to register? It's because, I didn't know this, the temple has records of every Jewish baby born. That's why in some of the, the later revolts that the revolutionaries, do you know what one of the first things they do in the temple is? They burn the records. They don't want them to even know who exists out there. But Jesus' name is registered at the temple. And people had access to the information. If this guy's really the Messiah, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. I heard he came from Galilee. Let's just check his birth record. Do they do it? So what are they doing? You ready for this? You know this guy and you know this gal. I have a strong opinion with no information. <laughs> That's what this is. So there was division among the people on who this is. Some wanted to arrest him. Some wanted to lay hands on him. I want you to notice something that Jesus does and what he doesn't do, I think, is better. Jesus is who he is. He stands up, he shouts, he teaches, he performs miracles. But do you notice that Jesus doesn't ever come to these groups of people having this dialogue and like, hey, I'm here to set the record straight. You notice that he doesn't do that? What is he doing? He's not here to give you 15 facts to prove something to you. He's here to say, you can have an encounter with me, but faith is not something I can just build a case for, and one plus one equals two, therefore you believe you're good. It's you need a real-life encounter with me, and I'm here to provide that, but I'm not here just to set the record straight for people who are arguing over it. I think sometimes we desperately want to set the record straight, don't we? People say things, and we think, that's wrong. I can prove it to you. And so often we miss that oftentimes when people are in that place, they're not receptive to that language anyways. And so really we're just driving a deeper wedge. I remember reading this a long time ago, and I actually can remember how powerful it was to me that I, I shared it when we were in the fellowship hall, like one or two days after I read this, and I've shared it since. Some of you have heard this. I had read um, this description uh, of shepherding animals and livestock. And I can't remember the author right this moment, but I remember the author was saying there are two ways historically that this has been done. One of the ways is you claim your property and you build really strong fences so the animals can't get out. So they have to stay where you want them to stay. This is kind of the control method. But there's an older way. It's a traditional ancient way, in fact. It's that shepherds would wander around and they would find where the very best springs of water were. And they would bring all their animals to drink to see the spring. And then guess what they would do with the animals? Just let them disperse. You want to know why? Because when that animal gets thirsty, they now know where to go to find the great water. I think part of this sermon is an invitation for us to say, hey, I know where the water is. I am not the water. The water lives in me, but the water points to the true river of water. And his name is Jesus. And I could tell you about him, but at the end of the day, I'd love to answer any of your questions, but at the end of the day, I'd love you to have an opportunity to encounter him. Because that's truly the only thing that will matter. Now, I'm not just saying all these things because I want to see, I want to show you what happens next. Because what happens next is so cool. Listen to this, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priest. These are the guys who just got sent out to go arrest Jesus. Who said to them, why did you not bring him? You got sent with one stinking job. It was to grab him, arrest him, and bring him to us. It's not that hard. And they answered, no one ever spoke like this guy. We've been guards in this temple a long time. We have heard a lot of famous rabbis and teachers come through here. We went to arrest him and we heard what he was saying and here's our takeaway. We didn't arrest him because there has never been someone who talks like this. Is that an encounter with God? That is a powerful encounter. You've been sent to arrest him and hand him over and it's such a powerful experience. You choose to do what? Defy orders of the most powerful people in Judaism. Your encounter is so strong, you defy them. Now listen, 
because I think this is an insight into what can happen to us as followers of Jesus, and we just need to be aware of it. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Anybody ever heard this term, gaslighting, before? They just did three things to try to discount everything that these people just heard. The first one, they said this. Have you been deceived? Oh, you're not that good of a Jew, are you? You don't know what you're looking for well enough that it, you wouldn't recognize it if it hit you right in the face. You're one of these idiots who believes this, aren't you? Anybody ever had that experience before? You actually believe that? Step two. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Have you seen any of the smart, well-to-do, elite people ever believing in this junk? You believe it? That's funny. I've never seen a smart person believe something like that. And then this is where you get insight into what they really think about the people they're supposed to be leading. But the crowd that does not know the law is cursed. What are they saying? Yeah, yeah, we get that the crowds might believe in him, but they don't even know the law for themselves. They're all cursed. This is how people for generations have tried to discount Christian faith. And I love how the story um, rolls out because some of you might know this verse that comes from the Gospel of John verse three or chapter 3. It's verse 16. Have you heard this verse before? Danny preached on this a, a couple months back, and we talked about how John 3.16 is not just a verse that Jesus is like, hmm, this would be really good to memorize and have forever. He actually says it to a Pharisee. The Pharisee's name is Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes in the dark of night because why? He has questions about Jesus and what Jesus is saying, and he wants an encounter with Jesus. Now, Nicodemus left that encounter with Jesus, and it seems like from my reading, he still had some questions and he was still unsure. But look at who pops back up in the middle of the Pharisees talking down to the guards and talking down to the common people and saying, if you believe in Jesus, you're dumb. You don't have enough information. Smart people don't believe in that kind of stuff. Look at what happens, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them. He had gone to Jesus before, but he was one of who? He was a Pharisee. He was a very influential Pharisee. He could get FaceTime with these people and speak directly to them, so much so that history knows his name and doesn't know the rest of the Pharisees' names. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Are you so dull? that you won't even take in this influential man at the very least and hear, hey, we have some serious concerns and serious questions about how you're drumming up the crowd. We'd like to bring you in and have a serious dialogue about maybe how you understand the law and who you are, where you came from, why you're saying these things. And this is Nicodemus's pushback. We have checks and balances for the sorts of things. You need to give him a, a, a hearing before you just take him in and arrest him. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? This is a slur, by the way, to call somebody from Galilee. It's like calling somebody a sweaty, disgusting fisherman. You're supposed to be this elite placeholder in the temple in Jerusalem, and now you're acting like you're from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. A couple things going on here. They're saying Jesus is not even a prophet because prophets don't arise from Galilee. Turns out that they haven't consulted their own information, have they? And they haven't bothered to ask Jesus where he actually is from. But they also clearly have not been reading their Old Testaments because um, a very simple internet search would have yielded the fact <laughs> that Jonah and Elijah are definitely from what was known in the first century as Galilee. And the prophets Nahum, some people say Nahum, and Hosea, we're likely from there too. Four. So this guy can't be a prophet because he's from Galilee. Has there ever been a prophet from Galilee? Why, yes, actually there has. Google has told me so. <laughs> so here's the point. 
There's always going to be voices. Some of them will be loud. Some of them will be lingering from within you from something someone said a long time ago. Some of them will be the, the personal feeling that I really want to impress or I really want to be accepted. I really want to be part of that in-group, but I know that this is going to be a hang-up for them. But there will always, always, always be voices that discount, demean, and try to sabotage our faith in Jesus. Some of them will come from people. Some of them will come from the spiritual enemy of your soul. Anybody ever read the screw tape letters before? There's this moment where the, the elder mentor is teaching how do you uh, discount, how do you uh, plant seeds of doubt, and they say, let's just destroy it all. And what does he say? Let's just get them to start disagreeing on some subtle things. That would be a good snowball effect. Let's just get them to start doubting a little bit. This is where I want to end. There's a way that we fight back. And the way that we fight back about these things is we do exactly what we're doing now. We gather, we worship, we wake up on days where we feel like, man, I could sure use an extra 15 minutes of sleep. And you say, no, you know, I'm going to put my feet on the floor. I'm going to open up the Bible and I'm going to read it. And there's going to be days where you think, I don't know why I did that. I didn't get much out of it. But guess what? When that becomes the disciplined part of life, God begins to speak in ways. You begin to hear his voice and you get, begin to recognize that's God's voice, not my own inner voice. You gather, you worship, you pray, you fellowship, you show up, you serve. These are the things that God has given to us. So here is my encouragement for you, and it's not so much a resolution, because a resolution is to try something new. My encouragement for you for 2024, that you would just resolve for many to continue what you're doing to not lose heart, to not give up, to not lose hope. For those of you who don't know Jesus, his promise to these people is exactly the promise to you. Anyone who comes and drinks can have it. Anyone who in their faith in him says, I need newness of life, I want life to flow out of me, can have it in him and him alone. And so here's how we're going to end this morning. I want to encourage, or I want to invite the, the worship team back. And I, I recognize this about many of you because it's me too. It's that sometimes we begin thinking, what's next? Maybe you got grocery shopping, maybe you got a party, maybe you got things to get together for New Year's Eve, and that's a very real thing because we're human beings. But what if we take five minutes, a deep inhale, an exhale, and we remember what are we doing here? What momentum do we want as we flip over a calendar page into 2024? What do we want on the forefront of our mind? What is important? My encouragement for you as we worship together that you would just pause. Maybe you just need a deep few breaths. Maybe you need to just let go of something. Maybe you need to confess a sin that's holding you back. Maybe you just need to say, I, I want to turn to someone and say, hey, I, I want to know more about Jesus. Please, please come up. We would love that. But let's go into 2024 20, as a, a church family that's just committed to discipleship of Jesus. We just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes it's so clear what we're doing. Sometimes we're like, I don't see it, but I know the path. The path is narrow, but I can stay on it because it's God's word and it's prayer and it's fellowship and it's depending on the spirit to lead and guide and convict me. Does that sound good? So as we worship, you're welcome to stand if you'd like. If you want to just kind of sit until you feel led, I just want to encourage you to worship however um, feels best for you. Uh, and then when you're in that place, maybe take a step forward and say, I'm going to get a little out of my comfort zone as we head into a new year. So let's sing together and um, then I'll wrap us up from there.
last day of the feast. And on the last day of the calendar year, it was the great day and Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want to tell you, that living water is yours in him. Things really will grow. There are many of you who feel like you're planted in maybe the sand of a desert. And you're praying, man, if just a single blade of grass could grow, that would give me some hope. I, I want to tell you that God's not interested in single blades of grass, that his living water is for you. And so often we resist it. We resist it because we caught up, get caught up in lots of things. I can do it on my own. What I have right now is good enough. But God doesn't want to settle on good enough. And he definitely doesn't want to let you get away with I can do it on my own. So I want to encourage you, if, if you feel like, man, I want to enter 2024, I, I want Jesus in my life. There, there are people who would love to, to pray with you. This is not the, the time to say, you know what, I'm not going to be bold. I'm, maybe I'll do it next week. This is the time to say, what a perfect time to say, this is my time. I'm going to come down. There will be, be people I'd love to invite, um, some of the pastors and staff, just to make themselves available to you. I want to pray over you and send you out, but I also want you to know that this is a safe space for you to have those conversations. It's a safe place for you to say, you know what, I'm not sure who Jesus is, but I want to talk about it. And so God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it brings smiles and joy to our faces and our hearts. Thank you for the way that it convicts us deeply. Thank you for the way that we even see our own sin we confess it now. Thank you for the message on every page that you are enough. And while we are not, you are. And in you, we can be made whole. So God, would you send us out today? Would we be people who flow living water? Would we recognize the life that is growing around us because of who you are in us? We love you. We are so thankful for all the things and all of the ways you've worked in and through us in 2023. But as we recall what you've done in the past, we know full well we celebrate it because you can do it right now in the present. We expect it and we want it. So we will continue to gather. We will continue to proclaim you as Lord. We love you. Would you send us out with joy? Would you send us out with dancing? Would people recognize the face of Jesus in our lives as we go? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy New Year, everyone.
Come, let us see.